I love good questions. Jesus always asked good, pertinent questions. Even when people were distracted in other things, he always brought them back to what was most important. And I love beginning sermons with good questions because I want us thinking through the Word of God. I want us to consider what we believe. And so I want to begin with that question. What do we believe about Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? Can we explain it? Can we answer those things? If someone were to ask us, how do we respond? Now, do we give the popular Christian worldview response? Do we give a response of what has been told us that we just accept and, and believe but yet have no basis for? Or is what we believe simply what we want to believe? Or do our answers come from the Word of God? Do we respond how Jesus does? Do we explain how Paul does? So this is the important question for believers. If you bear the name of believer, why do you believe what you believe? Where does that come from? Because as we go through John 17, this passage that we've spent so much time building up, and we're going to spend more time breaking down, Jesus reveals so much to us. The very Word of God made flesh reveals the divine plan for salvation. But yet many people read this, and they try to figure out or try to read into Jesus' prayer a man-centered prayer. Why doesn't Jesus pray in a man-centered way? Well, what do you mean? Because there's a certain way that we want Jesus to be many times. There's a certain way that people want Jesus to pray or maybe pray the way that they would. Most people, even well-meaning Christians, don't realize that they have a man-centered gospel. And they're sometimes shocked when the words of Jesus are expounded upon and it's not man-centered. They read this and say, well, why doesn't Jesus pray for world peace? Why doesn't Jesus pray for everyone to be saved? Doesn't Jesus have concern for those who won't believe in him? But that's not Jesus' concern. This makes many people uncomfortable that he's only talking about some and not the world. And the truth is that many people care more about people than they do the plan of Almighty God. They care more about what happens to some rather than that the word of God be faithfully presented and explained. And we have to ask this question of ourselves. Do we allow Scripture to dictate and direct our thoughts? Or do our thoughts and our feelings and our hopes for Scripture dictate Scripture? And if we have to be honest with ourselves, every one of us is guilty of this. Every one of us wants to read into Scripture what we wish was there or emphasize in Scripture the parts we really like and then kind of close our eyes and read really quickly past the passages that make us uncomfortable. But it is important to ask, not only why do I believe what I believe, but how do I read my Bible? And so this passage especially gives us this unique opportunity to hear from Jesus' perspective. The fullness of the divine in flesh. 
speaking for our hearing. And so there's a difference in the way that Jesus sees salvation. Jesus sees his people, and he sees in an eternal divine way. But us, being human and being finite, we see in a limited way. And so we have to be careful to recognize the difference between Jesus' perspective and our perspective. Because so many times, the tendency, and I've had many conversations with, with many people, with many of you, who try to read ourselves into Scripture and try to understand the Bible or what Jesus is teaching as if we were Jesus. We are not. And so we have to be careful that we don't place assumptions on the text based on our thoughts, our feelings. We don't make sure we don't bring our assumptions to the text. We know what happens when we assume, right? We don't want to make assumers out of ourselves and make sure that we approach Scripture the way that it should. I didn't know if that was going to work, but I'm glad you guys laughed. Um, So what I want us to realize in this passage this morning is that Jesus is speaking directly to the apostles here. He's speaking to the eleven. So this is a conversation for them. Yet at the same time, we see by the end of the prayer that everything he prays for the apostles applies to the saints throughout history, applies to the beloved of God, applies to the elect from all ages. And so that's where we find ourselves. Jesus praying for the apostles, but he will pray the same thing for all those who will come to believe in him. And he will tell us about those who will believe in him. So we're going to pick up in John 17, starting in verse 1. And as we will do the next few weeks, I want to read the entire prayer. I want us as readers of the Bible to get in the, con- get in the habit of reading in context. And if anything should be read in context, it is this entire prayer. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be glor- may, may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, give them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Lord, how can we even pray in our humanity in the same way that Jesus prayed in his humanity? How can we even approach our Father in heaven as Jesus did? How is it that the same manner of communicating with God would be given to us that was given to the Son. This should just cause us to be humbled and honored that you would allow us to speak to you, to bring our petitions to you, to bring our cares to you. Because Our Savior is also our mediator. Lord, help us as we read this passage, to read this passage. To dig deep and to take these words and to drink deep. That your word would penetrate, would teach, would apply to us what you desire for us. That your Holy Spirit would work within us that you would go before me this morning, that it would be the Spirit who breathed out these very words through Christ and through John onto this paper that would work in our hearts and in our minds to transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, thank you for prayer. Thank you for our Savior who intercedes for us. And thank you for your word that it may sharpen and shape and guide us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've broken this prayer of Jesus down into four sections. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the high priest and mediator. As we see his glory, this is how he can pray. He can pray because he has been glorified by the Father and is the mediator, the high priest. So last week, how he can pray. This week, 
who he prays for. He prays for those who are of the Father, given to the Son, loved by God. Next week, what he prays for. He prays for them to be sanctified in the world. And then the week after, why he prays. Prays for them to be united, for them to be one as he is one with the Father. So in this prayer, we get this complete how Jesus can offer this prayer, who he prays for, what he prays for for them, and why, his, why he prays. This is a very complete prayer, and that's why we want to take the time that we, we, we need to to break this down. Because when we read through this, Jesus makes one petition for himself. Glory. Father, glorify me. That is it. Because that encompasses everything. God's glory encompasses who Christ is and what he has done. And the rest of it, he is interceding for his people. He is interceding for the twelve, speaking directly to the ones in his hearing. And then ultimately, to all those who have been given to him, given him by the Father. Thus, this is the high priestly prayer. As the high priest, he brings man to God. He intercedes for the people of God, bringing them to the holy of holies. Because he has entered into the holy of holies once for all. And so as the intercessor, as the mediator, he has the right to define who he intercedes for, and he will. This morning we're going to look at who he intercedes for and how we can tell who they are from our very small understanding. And so this section today will teach us more about Christ and what it means to be his and to belong to him. So let's jump right in, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. As I always say, what's the first thing we look for? Repeated words. What do we see repeated? Your. He is speaking to the Father. Yours is a possessive term. All of these, your name, the people you gave me, yours they were, you gave them, they kept your word. This is all possessive, all belonging to the Father, but also particular. It's possessive and particular. They are yours. You know who they are. They belong to you. And this is a specific group. Those who you have and who you gave to me. All the fathers are entrusted to the Son. And he says, I have manifested your name is the first thing he said. This word manifested, it simply means to make clear, to explain in a way that will be clear to the, the hearers, to make, be made known in a very real sense. And so the son is the exegete of the father. And Terry asks me all the time, why do you always have to use seminary words? Why, why, why can't they use regular words? The son is the interpreter of the father. The Son is the one who rightfully interprets the words and plans of the Father. Just as if I am doing my job correctly, I should be exegeting or interpreting the words of God. Not making them, them something different, not giving them an intention other than what was planned, just explaining what is there. And so that's what Jesus did. I have, I have manifested your name. And so we've already seen that he's glorified the Father in his work on earth. He's accomplished that work and he's manifested the name. So Jesus is teaching us about his role on earth as he prays to the Father. So not only is he 
interceding, but he's also teaching at the same time. So when he says he's manifested your name, now we lose the gravity of this in the English language. But in Hebrew, the same, name, the same word for name is name and reputation. In Hebrew, when it says praise the name of the Lord, exalt the name of the Lord, that means to exalt his reputation, his self, his very nature. Everything that encompasses the Lord is in a name. We live in a culture that does not respect your reputation, that does not respect the name. We don't care if you have a good name. But in that culture, your name was everything, and they understood this. This is why when we read throughout the Old Testament, we see each name is, uh, is applied to the person. The name tells you something about them. And your name and your, your reputation was your ability to, to live and to work and to do business. Our God's name, shame is the word in Hebrew, is his reputation, is his very self. Jesus has manifested God to them. He has manifested the Father, not just a particular name, but everything that comes with that name. I have manifested it to you. I have manifested it to the people who you gave me. He has manifested your name to the people you gave me. Again, this is possessive and it is particular. Those given, referring to the disciples, they have been given, they have been entrusted to him, and he's manifested the name to them. Past tense, so he's talking about them. I've already done that. They know who you are. But as we see, the same applies to all the elect from every generation. The people you have given me out of the world. This is so important. Verse 6, I want to spend a little time on this because each line tells us something about Christ's relationship to the Father and our relationship to him. He has been given people out of the world. That means at some point they were of the world. And now they've been given out of the world to him. They're chosen, they're given out to be his. They are a gift. Something that the Father possesses and entrusts to the Son. There is an exchange here. This is a secure transfer. This is not reactive or uncertain. They have been given from the Father. They are His to the Son. Elected by the Father, entrusted to the Son, sanctified by the Spirit. There is no more secure salvation. We aren't lost in the shuffle here. There's, there's, there's no limbo area where we are not under the protection of God if they are the fathers given to the Son, sealed by the Spirit. But far too often, we know that the Son manifests the, the, the Father, and we, we read this, and we should let this sink in, but far too often we make it about us. We know this theologically. All right, you were the fathers, you were given to the Son, but then we forget this in our daily lives. Well, what if they don't respond to me? What if they don't hear the words I say? What if I say something wrong? What if I sin too greatly? When we make it about us and forget that the Father entrusts to the Son, we are in the hands of God. But so often in our lives, we take things into our own hands and assume that we could mess up God's plan or that somehow God's work is not good enough or not complete enough. What Jesus is telling them here is the ones 
who are of the Father, entrusted to the Son, they will know. Those who are supposed to know will know. So it is not up to us to worry about who will respond and who will not. Those of the Father will listen to the Son. The people given to the Son will be shown the Father. And Jesus is not concerned with people outside of that. We see this consistently. This makes people uncomfortable. Well, the Jesus I've made up in my head loves everyone and treats everyone exactly the same. Oh, he doesn't. We don't ever see that in Scripture. Look at chapter 6. Jesus prays the same thing before he's revealed it to them. They don't understand it. We don't understand it the first time we read it. But Jesus has a possessive and particular understanding of the people of God. Look at verse 37. Chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If that doesn't assure you of your salvation, you don't understand this verse. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is the will of God? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of God that those given to the Son will be raised up in him. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are the words of Jesus. He came for his own. He came for those given him by the Father. And what was the purpose of this? Why? Why did the Father give this to the Son? Jesus tells us. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We are elected and given from the Father to the Son to be obedient. These things go hand in hand. You cannot separate election from obedience. You cannot separate calling from keeping. He died for his own, that they might know the Father. They might believe in the Son and obey. One more thing. This is so easy to gloss over. And I love that the way Jesus speaks about his disciples, and we should learn from this. There are many places that we cannot be Christ, but there are many places where we should learn from him. Notice how gracious he is. It is amazing how gracious he is, because these disciples, Jonathan prayed that we are stiff-necked people. These are stiff-necked disciples. They are slow to listen. They are slow to understand. They are quick to doubt. He calls them, ye of little faith, and he tells them just a few verses and a few moments earlier, you're all going to scatter. In the hour when the world will all turn on me, so will you turn on me. And how does he describe them to the Father? They have kept your word as if it were completed. Through their faith in Christ, he sees them as obedient. This is how he prays for them. This is how he advocates for them. They have kept your word. By believing in me, your word has been fulfilled because I am their righteousness. This is how our advocate loves and prays for us. How often, when speaking about our brothers and sisters, do we lead with their flaws? How often do we say, oh, I love them, but they do X, Y, and Z? Jesus speaks about these people. These men who are about to run away at the hour when he would need them. But he doesn't need them because he's not alone. He's with the Father. And he says, I, they have kept your word. He continually intercedes for us. 
When he speaks to the Father, he speaks about us keeping his word. Every time we fail, we feel like, I can't do this. I'm not able to do this. But Jesus sees us as law keepers because he kept the law for us. And we need to remember this when we deal with our brothers and sisters. We should pray for them and love them as Jesus did. Because in his sight, they are obedient. They are beloved children because they are his. And he goes on with his compliments and his confidence in them. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Literally 30 seconds ago, they just figured this out. And Jesus prays with confidence. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Even their little knowledge. Three years it took them to figure this out walking with Jesus, and it's still pleasing to him. That he offers up prayers confidently. So he does with us. He intercedes for us. He loves us because we know that all things are his. Not that we know all things, but that we know all things are his and that he came from the Father. Keeping the word of God is tied to believing. And believing is obedience because we believe in the fullness of Christ. This is amazing. Because now that burden that we carry with ourselves to know everything and do everything right and maintain our salvation is placed at the feet of our Savior and his throne of grace. Jesus says that now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. It's not gloss over this. Everything that Christ does, everything. Jesus speaks of many things given to him by the Father. In fact, everything is given to him by the Father. This is a way of expressing equality with the Father. So don't miss this. The, the main point of Jesus' ministry is not the miracles. It's not even the teaching. The main point is that he is from God. Everything of God's is his. He is God. And because he is God, now he can perform miracles. Because he is God... We listen to his word. Because he is God, we believe in him. Those things are not the end of themselves. They point us all to who Christ is and what he has done. If we know that everything is his from the Father, then the miracles make sense. Then the teaching makes sense. Then the resurrection is something to place our identity and our hope in. Because everything is given him from the Father. And he breaks down this, I I love the, succinct logical progression here in verse 8 for i have given them the words that you gave me that they have received them and they have come to know in truth that i came from you and have believed that you sent me look at this gospel progression here he is given a word from the father gives it to the disciples the disciples receive the word they know it in truth they know that he has come from the father an allusion to his deity and that he is sent by the Father, an allusion to his humanity, the full person of Christ, given from the Father to the Son to the disciples, and that's what they believe. This, process, this gospel process of reception, the, Father rece- the Son receives from the Father, the disciples receive from the Son, and then from the disciples this word goes out, and reception turns into belief. 
This is the gospel. And gospel ministry is not just knowing facts. It's not just passing a Bible exam. It's not just being able to say, I understand these things in my mind. But it is reception and belief and faith in the risen Christ. Paul walks us through this. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 10. Because when we think about this gospel progression and we think about gospel ministry, this is probably one of the most helpful passages. This is Paul's encouragement to the church and those who minister in the gospel. So Romans chapter 10, if you don't know where Romans is, it's two books to the right of John. Starting in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Look at this, this transference of the good news. The faithful one. Jesus is the faithful one. He is the most beautiful feet because he brings the gospel from heaven down to earth. He is sent from the Father. The word apostle means sent one. He is sent from the Father. Sent to preach the good news. And then he sends out the disciples, the apostles, to preach the good news. And then from the apostles, the church sends out missionaries throughout the ages. This gospel comes from God the Father to God the Son. Sent out to the disciples, sent to us. This is God's plan for salvation. And we are continuing in the words and ministry of Christ. This is gospel ministry. And Jesus lays this out for us in John 17. What is given to him by the Father, from the Father, he is given to the disciples. Those who receive it, those who know it in truth, and those who believe it, prove to be his. So far, so good. This is all great, and hopefully this is helpful, breaking down and understanding how Jesus prays about us. So this is all acceptable. This is all easy to receive. Then we read verse 9. I am not praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Some of you get real uncomfortable when you hear these words. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Wait, Jesus does not pray for some people? How'd that get in there? That that was never in there before. This is not the Jesus I've created in my mind. Again, most people, most professing Christians would say, 
that Jesus loves everyone and that there's this universal gospel and that Jesus came with an unknown uh, message to an unknown people just hoping someone would respond. I tell you, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. So we need to spend some time here because this makes people uncomfortable and this, this threatens people's own pet theologies. And one of my favorite things in the world to do is threaten people's pet theologies. And so we, we need to understand this. And we need to understand what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. So there, there's no ambiguity here. This doesn't mean something else than what you read on the page. It means exactly what it means on the page. It gives us the clear nature of Jesus' intercession on earth and as high priest. He's not interceding for the world. He's just not. He's interceding for the beloved of God. He's interceding for those given him by the Father. Remember back in verse 2, at the same, in the same breath where he is given authority from the Father, he is given those to whom he gives eternal life. These go hand in hand. His authority from the Father is the authority for eternal life for those given him of the Father, given out of that authority. So we have to see that Jesus, many times people approach Jesus' prayers as like wishful ignorance. Like, I hope they respond to me. Jesus is waiting for you. It's all up to you. This is confident intimacy. I'm not praying for them. I know who I'm praying for. And this is also not a contradiction to many other things that we see in, in, in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews lays this out really well. It'll be up on the screen. Hebrews 7, 22 to 25. So in this context, Hebrews 7 is Melchizedek, the, the high priesthood that Jesus is a receiver of. And this is new covenant language. So Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. High priest continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, the, to God through him. He's able to save those who draw near to God. Well, wait, it sounds like they're drawing near to God through him. That's how we have to read this. They draw near to God through him. It is only through Christ that you can draw near to God. It is only by his intercession. It is only by the Father's election. It is only by his propitiation that you can draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is an encouragement too because the prayer he is praying for the Father to the Father here. He is still praying for us. I pray for them. I intercede for them. Our Savior is our intercessor. He is our mediator between us and God. That's why our salvation is secure. But this threatens the common understanding of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? How does he love the world and then not pray for the world? What are you doing here? It's the same word. It means exactly the same thing, right? We have to understand this. We have to know how, what words are being used and how they're being used. The Greek word cosmos means the created world. It does. But it also means the world system, the evil system that exists in opposition to God. And so we must know from context what Jesus is praying about here. When he says God so loved the world that he sent his son. We know this to be true. God loves his creation so much that he didn't destroy it the moment that it rebelled against him. And he sent his son to redeem it. 
but he is not redeeming those who hate him. This world system that wants no part of him. Jesus says again and again and again in this prayer, I am not of the world. It also doesn't contradict verse 21. It says that, that very thing, the end of verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So let's break this down here. As he tells them in chapter 14, I will manifest myself to you and not the world. So there is something that Jesus does to those who are his that the world is not privy to. Same thing is happening here. I will pray for you and not the world. But in the world, in in creation, there are those of the world and those those who are called out of the world. So within the world, within God's creation, there are those who belong to him and those who don't. He does not pray for those who do not belong to him. There are those of the world who have his word, who will receive it. There are those of the world who hate him. And they hate his word, as he tells us in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus makes this distinction. This is not a gray area to Jesus. This is a clear dividing line. So he prays for those entrusted to him who are like him, who are not of the world. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus sees no need to explain this. He just declares it. He just says what is. Those who we see in verse 6 were given to the Father, they're called out of the world. Verse 18, they are sent into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. They're called out of the world, sent into the world, that they may reach those in the world who are his. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. The calling, the sending is so that his will respond. And Jesus intercedes for them. And we are also told in verse 23 that the entire world will believe or or will recognize. Look at verse 23. I am in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. James tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. One day the entire world will recognize and they will know that we are sent from God or he is sent from God. We are sent from the Son and that that we are loved by him. doesn't mean they will repent and put their faith and trust in him. So there's a way that the world cannot see him now and see this difference, but there will be a time when the world will see all of this and they will know the plan of the Father as we know it now. So I know this is way outside of our brains and way outside of our understandings, but I don't want to shy away from this. Because again, what we've seen throughout this prayer and really what we've seen throughout John is that Jesus speaks in a very possessive and particular manner. Yours have been given to me. Yours they were, now they are, they are mine. Your words I have given to them and they are yours and yours is mine and mine is yours. Very possessive, this reciprocal nature between the Son and the Father. All the way through God's unbroken chain of salvation. Election, propitiation, regeneration, justification, intersection, intercession and glorification. All belonging to the Son and the Father. Now, All that makes sense, again, on a theology exam. But for many people, this is hard to digest. 
This is hard to reconcile in our minds, and it makes us uncomfortable. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we like to place our emotions and our thoughts above the Word of God. We like to exalt what makes us comfortable and what will please the world around us rather than what will please the world of God. And here's also what's gonna, what most people don't realize. They, they, they know this, but they don't realize it. Jesus' understanding and Jesus' knowledge is perfect. He is God in flesh. Ours is not. Too many people put themselves in a the place of Christ. Too many people think that I should know everything Christ should know. This should make as much sense to me as it did to Jesus. You, you know how stupid that sounds. But how often do we do it? Well, or how often do people make this? Well, if I can't understand it, it can't be true. If you could understand everything about God, I would want nothing to do with him. Because if he could fit into your head, he's, he's, he's not a God who could save me. My sins are too great to fit into your head. He makes the Father's plan known to us, which is amazing, but not everything. Because remember, he has a divine perspective here. This is the God of eternity taking on flesh, trying to describe the plans of God to the finite, to the sinful, who are, who are limited by our circumstances and our understandings. You are not Christ. You are not meant to know what he knows. What he chooses to explain to us Absorb it. Bring it in. But what he doesn't choose to explain to us, rest in it. All the knowledge of all creation, of everything belongs to him. The secret things belong to him. And what he reveals to us, hold tightly. Whenever you get confused with this, go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord. The rest, what he gives to us, rejoice in it. And this also causes a lot of problems for people. Well, well, okay, if Jesus is not praying for the world, he's only praying for us, and I'm trying to make myself Jesus, and I'm trying to know what Jesus knows, well, then I'm just not going to share the gospel. Because why would I share the gospel if God already knows who's going to be saved, and God has some people out there, and, and again, people try to put themselves in the place of Christ. God knows. We are not God. It's one of those things where I say, oh, of, of course I know that. We have to remind ourselves, I have to remind you often, you are not God. You're not meant to know everything God knows. We are just his messengers. But we are still to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are called to. Because from our perspective, we don't know. Our perspective, we are to presume that everyone who God puts in, his, in, in, our, in our lives, he is using us to be his ministers of reconciliation. But at the same time, he knows everything. If our God didn't know everything, we would not want to worship him. You do not want to worship an ignorant God who is waiting on, on sinful, broken people to do what he thinks they should. The best way I've heard this explained, and I've used this analogy before, I'm going to keep using it because it's, it's good. Uh, Charles Spurgeon describes this as this, this tension between, well, you know, how do we share the gospel, but yet God knows the, the elect. God knows his plan. So he talks about the, the, the gate of heaven, a figurative gate of heaven. And so from the divine perspective, looking from heaven down to earth, it says on the gate, elect from the foundation of the earth, from before the foundation of the earth. But from earth, looking to heaven, looking toward the things of God, it says, whoever, whoever will believe. And so from our perspective, whoever believes 
will be saved. But at the same time, God's view of it is, you are mine from before the foundation of the earth. We are looking on this side of the gate, not God's side of the gate. And the problem is we try to put ourselves on God's side of the gate far too often. Stay in your lane. Remember your place. We must be careful not to confuse ourselves with Christ and read ourselves into the story. He prays as high priest. There's only one. There's ever only been one high priest. Only one can pray this way. But I don't want to discourage you because we pray as priests. Look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 2, excuse me. Should be up on the screen. First of all, then I urge, this, this is, um, do we not have 1 Peter 2? There we go. All right, so 1 Peter 2, this, this, this great explanation of who we are in Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is who you are in Christ, in God. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, you know how the Levitical priest system worked. There was one high priest, and there was the whole tribe of Levi. Christ replaces the high priest. We replace the tribe of Levi as the priesthood of believers. You are a holy priesthood. And what are we to do as that holy priesthood? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is why we pray. We are chosen and precious to be a holy priesthood. And our prayers are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God because of Christ. Through the finished work of Christ, our high priest, now we can pray. We don't pray as Jesus prayed. We can't. We pray as we are called to, as priests. And what does that look like faithfully? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. It will also be on the screen. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Hold there. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. We spent... And our guys and I, we spent a night talking about prayer. All the things that we covered in our focus on prayer are given to us here. First of all, made for all people. We are to be people of prayer. We are to be prayerful people. Because we have a high priest who intercedes for us and who hears our prayers. Go on. Go ahead. For kings, for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is how we're supposed to stand in, in the world. We pray for our leaders, that we are to be peaceful and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. God, our Savior. Jesus is God, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. People love this verse. Oh, wait, he desires all people to be saved. That means there can't be an elect anywhere. That means Jesus is lying in John 17. But again, if you try to put yourself in the place of God, this makes it seem like God thinks about people the same way you do. This is how this works. From his side of heaven, he knows who will respond to our message. From our side of heaven, we act like every person we encounter are going to be saved. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me pray. I want to pray for you. I want to intercede for you because from our perspective, our God is loving and our God is merciful. And any and anyone, every and anyone who turns from their sins will be saved. They'll come to the knowledge of the truth for there's one God. 
There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. The mediator is speaking in John 17. Let's listen to the words of the mediator and not try to make him our puppet and say what we want him to say. Because it is he who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at a proper time. Because of Jesus' ransom, because of, of his work, God's salvation can go out to the nations and all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation, all who are called according to his name, they will respond to the gospel and we get to be a part of that as priests. Make sense? Last verse, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is perfect equality. All mine is yours, and all yours is mine. This is what should happen in a healthy marriage, in any perfect union. All, this, all that is mine is yours, and all that is yours is mine. But if Jesus is not God, this statement is absolutely arrogant and blasphemous. To say that is all, all that is the Father's is mine and all that is mine is the Father's. Anyone who makes himself equal with God and is not God is a blasphemer and should be put to death. All mine. He's, not, he's speaking about all things, but he's speaking particularly about the ones that he's praying for. All mine. Everyone who belongs to me. Notice, nowhere in this prayer does Jesus speak about what they will do, who they will, who they will choose, how they will respond. He speaks with certainty because all mine are the Father's. The Father gave them to me and all mine are His. This is how our Savior sees us and prays for us. We are His because we are the Father's. We are the Father's because we are His. We are the Father's given to the Son, sealed by the Spirit. This is where our assurance lies. Brothers and sisters, we should read this and have so much assurance. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the Father and the Son preserve, protect us by the power of the Spirit forever. I will never cast them out. And I am glorified in them. We touched on this last week, but just as a quick reminder, Jesus completed the work of the Father. He received glory on the cross for dying for our sins. The fact that we are no longer slaves to sin, the fact that we are no longer haters of God and destined for destruction is to the glory of Christ. And this is incredible. That the gospel is God's glory on behalf of sinners. He is glorified in them. He manifests the glory of God in his sacrifice for sin and redemption of creation. How amazing is it that our God uses us to glorify himself. In Christ and in his word, God is glorified through his disciples. I am glorified in them. Hallelujah. Just a quick summary here. What are the marks of the elect? How does Jesus describe a Christian? How does Jesus describe salvation? How does Jesus ascribe the saints? So we've got to understand, certain things are for us to, uh, to behold, and some are not. First, they're given from the Father to the Son. None of us were there when that transaction happened. Don't act like you should be brought into the conversation. You weren't there when Jesus was given his authority, so don't question it. He was given, all were given to the Son by the Father, before the foundation of the earth. But now there are things in time we can see. One of them, he says, they will keep his word. 
Now, we are obedient and we can see that, but still in a spiritual sense, we can't see our obedience in Christ. We can't see ourselves as God sees us. We can trust and know that through Christ, we are keepers of his word. He also says that they will know what is given to the Son by the Father. They will receive his words. They will know in truth that Jesus comes from the Father. A Christian will know the deity of Christ. He comes from the Father. They will believe that he is sent by the Father. Take on flesh. His humanity will believe in his deity and his humanity. We will believe... A believer is particular. A Christian is someone that Jesus intercedes for, not the world. They belong to him in a particular way that the world doesn't. And they're possessed and protected by God the Father and God the Son. Their complete salvation is in him. And all this is that Christ is glorified in them. Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God, all of this. So just leave you with these words. These things are for God to know perfectly. And these things are for us to find out through the spread of the gospel or in eternity. All we can close with is this. Know Jesus Christ. Believe in him. For this is salvation. Fully God. Fully man. Perfect sacrifice for sins. High priest. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Heavenly Father. Our gracious and good Father, in your hands there is no more secure we will ever be. You have kept us perfectly secure from the hands of the Father to the hands of the Son to the direction of the Spirit. Our God leaves nothing up to chance. Our God is perfect in, our, in his plans. But yet you are high and lifted up. Your, your ways are higher than our ways. How could we ever understand you? Let us rest in what we do not understand. Let us celebrate what we do not understand. Let us celebrate your plan when it minimizes us and exalts you. Let your spirit accomplish his purpose. Let us be used in gospel ministry. Let the word go forth faithfully. Let those with ears to hear receive it and rejoice in the gospel. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Let us be people of prayer who intercedes for people as priests, not putting ourselves in the place of high priest. That all may come to salvation. That the gospel may be proclaimed to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that we may rejoice that we are the beloved of God and get to be used for his glory. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.